Good morning. I'm Phil Bronsma, standing in for Pastor Greg Brady this morning. Uh, Greg, yesterday did a, and Friday did a significant amount of time leading our council and a few other leaders from our church on uh, pulling together as a leadership group and setting some paths forward for this year. He also led a, uh, a session in the Sunday school hour today. So I'm helping out. Touchdown. You may know that in Arizona today is a significant sports event. It's been on TV in recent days, the exciting conclusion of the Phoenix Waste Management Golf Championship. It's some people laugh. Other, you may know, you may not know. Scotty Scheffler is in the lead. He's got a two-stroke advantage over John Rahm. If one of those two win, and Rory McIlroy finishes worse than fourth, one of those two is going to take over first place in the world golf rankings. Some people know this. Scotty's tee time, since he, he and John Rahm are the, two of the, the best in that field so far today, they tee off last. Whoever's in the lead on the golf tournament on Sunday, they're teeing off last because they get to see where everyone else is going, and it also helps make sure all the crowds stick around to the very end. His tee time is at 11.45, in part designed so that the perhaps two 100,000 fans who are at that golf tournament, there's some small fraction that want to watch the Super Bowl. So that tournament will be finished in time for people to um, get home and watch the Super Bowl. That's it about sports. The sermon has nothing to do with football. So you've got three options this morning. Here's option number one the text version of everything in one slide. God requires perfect people to come into heaven. We aren't. Jesus invites us to be perfect in God's eyes through his sacrifice. We accept that, and to say thank you to God, we want to please him by having, building our faith, uh, building our practices. It's a way to please God. It doesn't earn us our salvation, but it's a way to respond in faith. Like if your auntie gave you $10,000, you'd probably wash her car next weekend. But on a bigger scale. So we aren't in heaven. We still sin. We're holding back. You know, that's the, the dilemma we're in in earth right now. And so we hold back some of our time, some of our resources, because I'll take care of this, God. I got this. And that's not right, but it happens. So we should, actually, we must keep working at developing our faith and improving our faith practices. If you're a disciple, if this is one of your disciplines, you do it. 
Okay, option number two, for those of you that are like pictures more than words. The y-axis is not the scale. The zero line across, if you're below that line, you're not saved. If you're above the line, you're either saved on earth or, way at the top, you're saved and in heaven. And over time, if you're working on your faith, you should see an an gradual, some gaps, some dips, but in general, over your lifetime, you'd want to see general improvement in your faith and in your practices because you're working on it. The alternative is you're not working on it and you just got a flat line. I'd prefer that you work on it. Okay? So, that's option two. Here's option three, the full story. So if you have a brisket to get in the oven, you're good. You can catch the rest of it on YouTube. I'm going to read three passages that, that, that address this topic in general. The first one from Hebrews 12. The second one, and it's, they're all going to be up on the screen. second one from Mark 10. And the third one from Mark chapter 1. From Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, before Jesus, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Perseverance. Then from Mark 10, uh, it's the story of uh, what we, many refer to as the rich young ruler. Uh, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Said Jesus, answered Jesus. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, Who then can be saved? 
And Jesus said to them, looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. In the last couple of verses from Mark 1, by comparison, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew cast in net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, said Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. A huge contrast between that rich ruler and these disciples. So, we're going to compare these two. I mean, the the comparison is pretty obvious. I'm going to go through it anyway. (laughs) Um, The disciples were called by Jesus. They stopped. They dropped their work, and they followed him. Now, they weren't perfect, right? I mean, they weren't in heaven. They weren't without sin. If, if you read the Gospels, you see there's a lot of doubts. They do some foolish things, especially Peter. But, but they were committed, right? They were committed to the point where they just dropped stuff. They didn't say, hey, hang on a sec, Jesus. Um, I need to close up the house. I need to prepay my rent. How long do you think this going to last? Six months? Or do I need to like, prepay, take care of my utilities for a year? I need to go to the ATM. You know, get some walking around money. No. They dropped their st- I mean, they abandoned their careers to go follow Jesus. The rich ruler, he, he, he had great wealth. So presumably, he wasn't a fisherman. <laughs> he was a businessman, inherited wealth. So, I mean, he was, in those days, I mean, he had people working for him. Chances are he did not work with his hands. He was rich, inherited wealth maybe, or he you know, had a couple of olive gardens groves that are just you know, really churning out good olive oil year after year, extra virgin olive oil that only the best in Jerusalem would afford and pay for. But he was a rule follower, clearly a rule follower. No murder, check. No stealing, check. No adultery, check. No lying, check. Honor your father and your mother, check. What do I need to get into heaven? Jesus said, give away all of your wealth. Basically, like the disciples of a few minutes ago, give away all of your wealth, walk away from your security, and follow me. And that was the end of the discussion because it was pretty clear from this context. He's willing to do every task to get a good grade, but he was missing the sacrifice of what was most precious to him. And I'm 
speculating. His wealth was a big part of his identity, of his ego. That's how he's described. He was described as a rich ruler, not just as a ruler, but a rich one. So that's part of his identity. In those days, in, in Israel, the Jewish leaders set rules. These sacrifices, you can do this on the Sabbath, but you can't do that on the Sabbath. You have to you know, um, bring your sons in to be circumcised within eight days. You bring this sacrifice on this day. And if you do all those things, you're good. Okay? Lots of rules. There's some traditions of the ultra-conservative Jews, even today, have a lot of rules to follow. Um, and he's looking for, what rule am I missing? I got room in my sheet for like a couple more rules. I want to check those off, and I'm good. And that's not happening. Not happening. Jesus calls him out because he wanted to be saved. He wanted to go to heaven. But he wasn't all in. He kept something back. So we're going to look at a couple definitions, a disciple and a discipline, just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Disciple is one, is someone from a Christian standpoint, one of the 12 that follows Jesus. We also use that term in church language if, if you're discipling somebody. You're, you're training that person. You're teaching that person. If I'm a disciple in my faith, I am learning. I am working to get better. But outside of church, we don't use that phrase very frequently. And if we do, sometimes it's, you know, you're a disciple of Jim Jones and, you know, or some cult Outside of church, it's frequently a derogatory term. If you're a follower of a certain economic practice, you tend to be a follower, not a disciple. Okay? It's not very widely used. The word defin- the deci- discipline is used quite frequently. And, that's, and I want to get into this because that's a key piece of what I'm talking about today. It's training to act in accordance with rules. That's more of a, a military context. But the second two definitions, an activity or regimen that develops or improves a skill, or the third one, a, a type of instruction or learning. So the disciplines of history or a discipline of economics. My discipline, I have several disciplines. One of them is I'm a chemist. When people talk to me and say, what do you do? I say, I'm a chemist. And especially around here, if you're in the chemical industry, that, that tells me I'm in the chemical industry, most likely. And it tells people I'm not an engineer. Nothing against engineers. But it's, a di- but it's a different discipline. And if I'm talking to chemists, I'll go a level deeper. Let's say I'm an organic chemist because it differentiates me from analytical chemists and catalyst chemists because I, now I can, if I'm in my group, I can go down. That's my, a more specific description. And if I'm talking to organic chemists, and I say I'm a physical organic chemist, which differentiates me from synthetic organic chemists, because those people are the ones that do design drugs. 
And I don't do that kind of chemistry. Physical organic chemistry is often associated with industrial chemistry. I know how to make formaldehyde, methanol, acetic acid, and vinyl acetate. I read those patents, and I lose track of time. Because <sighs> that's my discipline. I, I added up this morning. This has been my discipline for 46 years since I declared a major in college. You know, long time. And, all, and when it's a discipline, you work at it. You, you learn. You learn your craft. You get better. I would go to conferences. I would speak. At, I, I have networks of peers that I, we solve problems together. You know, if, if, you're, if you have a discipline, not just a, oh, yeah, 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 I watch football twice a year. That's not a discipline. I practiced industrial chemistry for, I was a chemist for 46 years. And now, that, dis, that the sidebar, that discipline is ending. My current discipline is retiree. And I'm working at being good at that. But, but so that, so, so you understand what a discipline is. I mean, it's, it's a field or an area where, where, where you all, I have made a decision, a commitment. This is something I'm going to do, and I'm going to get good at it, and I'm going to stay good at it, okay? By comparison, we don't stop with lesson number two. I took three guitar lessons. I've read the book. I know where all the chords are. And I have a guitar. I'm done. I'm good. Of course not. Of course not. If you have a discipline, piano, tennis, pickleball, we have all sorts of disciplines. And it's here too, not just faith, right? We have a lot of disciplines. And they're good. Nothing wrong for me having chemistry as a discipline. I have golf as a discipline. I have woodworking as a discipline as well as my faith as a discipline. Those are things that I have that I work at. I have more, I subscribe to more YouTube channels on woodworking than on any other topic. But not golf. YouTube channels on golf lessons, I don't do that. But, so then for us, this becomes, but it becomes part of my identity. As those of you that I chat with, you know, those are four topics, faith, chemistry, golf, and woodworking. I can talk for a long time on those topics to the boredom of everybody who's not in that discipline as well. And that's okay. That's just fine. So if we're a disciple, if we're in a discipline, we keep at it. We practice, we keep learning, we, we maintain, at a minimum, we maintain our level so we don't fall back. And, but frequently, we try to get better, you know? And so here's the question for us. Are, are, are we growing and maintaining the right things? What's our priority list of disciplines? 
United States secular culture is in competition for place number one for Christians. Because United States secular culture says number one discipline is you. Period. You need money. You need a you need a car, you need a new set of golf clubs. Oh, have you seen that new circular saw blade that Diablo came out with? Right? I mean, it, it sucks you in. Whatever your discipline is, when you're watching TV, it's encouraging you to have yourself as your primary discipline. Take care of yourself. Show off how good you are. Don't rely on anyone else. And, to, and now it's, there's a lot of, we're wealthy by almost any definition because in the United States we have a place, virtually everybody here has a place to live. We have a job or social security. We're not destitute standing on the corner. We have, perhaps, if you have a job, you have some savings for retirement, or you have the prospect of Social Security. So it's like, I might have a bank account. I have access to health care. I'm in good shape. And I think a lot of that comfort, that wealth in a variety of areas, helps mask the, the, the spiritual needs that we have. As Jesus says, it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. I look back to when my parents and or my grandparents came over on the boat. They were destitute. They had a suitcase. This is now my great-grandmother. was a widow, two young boys, one of whose, which is my grandpa. A suitcase each. The address of a cousin in West Michigan, that was it. But when you're destitute, <laughs> when you're broke, and you're with a, a group of other people who are broke, you might remember that if you were in college, you're all broke, and you sort of crowd in together, and, and you eat mac and cheese together, and you split a can of tuna three ways because you're broke. It's easier to, to, it's easier to open up and say, I need if you're saying that for physical things, it's easier to say that for spiritual things as well. If I look at, I strongly support the growth of the Christian church in India. That church is growing like crazy, especially to the underclass who live day to day in huts with dirt floors. The Christian church is growing like crazy. The organization I support in southern India starts about 2,000 churches a year, and we baptize 10,000 a year. But these are people that are already needy. And so when they see the need for, for spiritual help, they say, well, yeah, <laughs> it's on my list. And that's easy. Now, for, so for, here's my point. For us in Western society, it's really easy to say, I'm okay. Now, we're Christians in this room. So we know that's not right. 
Because if that were absolutely your number one, two, and three priority, you, you'd be watching the pregame show on ESPN, right? You wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. But for us, that's, that's a dilemma. That's always something that we have to be aware of so we don't get complacent and start commingling priority number one and number two and miss that discipline. So here's what we need to do. Review and resolve. We should think about this. Think about where we are in our faith, current faith and our practices. And resolve to do something. Here's how you do it. Think about it. Don't just say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a nice thing. Yeah, yeah. And lose it by the time you get to your car in the parking lot. This week, I'd like you to take 10 minutes. Do three things. Think about it. Where do I put my time and my... Basically, we've got two things. We've got time and we've got money or resources or whatever else. I'll just call it time and money because there's a lot of different ways we talk about money. It's your house, it's your car, it's where you put your money, right? Pray about it. Listen to God about it. Here's another topic where we need God's advice, not just my own, right? To say, God, what you don't want to do is say, God, yep, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to make a... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make a little Excel spreadsheet, you know, and I'm going to take each of my disciplines and I'm going to rank them. No, 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 no. God wants this prioritization process too. God wants to own our time of thinking, our time of meditation. So when we do this, obviously God calls us to use our brains. But we write these, so either mentally or physically write these down. What are my disciplines? What are my priorities? Where do I have, whether I call it a discipline or a passion or not, where where are the places I spend my time and my money? Is that okay? Is that the right place to go? And I'll exaggerate here. If you have, if my Christian box is from 10 until noon on Sunday, I take care of work myself, that's a problem. We should talk. If you're a serial murderer, we should talk. But in a public place, right? Uh, Listen to God. Talk about it with your friends. If you have friends that have similar disciplines, they're going to be easier to talk to. Talking with golfing friends is easy. You know, when I go to the Woodcraft store or when I go to Clark's Hardwood up in the Heights, it's like a candy store, right? They aren't Christians there, but when I find Christian woodworkers and Christian golfers, which we do, the conversations there about what we do and how we practice is more meaningful. So find somebody to talk to as well. I ask you to resolve to do one thing, to either bring back up a discipline that that perhaps has drifted over time 
or to say, my situation has changed. I mean, I retired five, six months ago. I'm still working out. What do I do with my time, right? For me, that's a di- I got an extra chunk of hours every week that I'm going to do something. For me, I'm still working through. What do I do with that time? That's a re- and to not just merely keep sliding. So review what you have. Resolve to make a change. And ultimately, how can we not have our faith discipline as number one if you're a Christian? And that's where I want you to think about it. Because the, the competition for our time and our money in Western society is huge all day long. We're dressed in nice clothes. We drive cars. <laughs> we have insurance on our cars. Right? This is especially hard in Western culture. But pick one thing to turn. One thing to work on. So here's the graphic again. If you're a Christian, you're above zero. By rule, you're above zero. Look at the scale. What we can do, you know, we can work on going from like one, you know, up to, up to ten, okay? Way up there is 31 trillion. That happens to be the U.S. national debt at the moment. That, but, so. It was a, a nice big number to put out there. 31 trillion, okay? So we're like 12 zeros away from 31 trillion, and we're still not in heaven on our own, right? But we're saved on earth, and, and what we're doing now on earth, working out our faith, working on our salvation, working on our disciplines. I'm a Christian golfer. I'm a Christian woodworker, and I'm a Christian chemist. So that all works through together. They aren't separate boxes. But when I golf, I'm working on it. I work on politeness, courtesy, being nice to colleagues that, that are people I might be matched with. I work really... Stay calm. Don't say bad words. That's part of the discipline of a good golfer is to not lose your temper. It is. That doesn't get us into heaven, but we're already safe, so we don't have to worry about that. So whether your slope is... You've got to work on it. You're, we're not going to get ourselves up to 31 trillion or into heaven. We don't need to because Jesus takes care of, has already taken care of that point. You know, when we pass, we get an automatic promotion up to heaven. Automatic. But now's the time to take our faith and our practices seriously. Let's pray. God, as we come to you, We see in the Bible how you want us to run the race, to use our best ability to stay focused, to build our faith, to serve you. And that's hard to do because we have other favorite things to do. We have other disciplines. We have other passions. And especially in today's society, God, what we listen and read and hear and see pull us away because they encourage us to be me first instead of God first. I ask for your Holy Spirit to be in our hearts so that when we see these distractions, they might not be evil inherently, but if they pull us away from our primary discipline of our faith development and our practice growth, 
it's a problem. Please help us to do this well. I especially pray for young adults, those that are in college that have maybe have left home from high school and now are on their own for the first time. And in these, these formative young adult years, especially be with our college kids and our young adults as they're setting their own habits and disciplines, that they will resolve to have you as their number one and will have perseverance to find Christian friends to reinforce that priority. In your name, we pray, God. Amen.